This is Stacy Harbaugh and Nicole Alley with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. UW Oshkosh is planning to lay off more than 200 employees. The move is a cost-cutting measure as the university faces an $18 million budget shortfall. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the school has faced numerous issues that have led to this point, declining enrollment, the state's aging population, and lawmakers reducing state support. Oshkosh isn't alone. 10 out of the 13 UW System schools are expected to face a deficit by next summer. UW System President Jay Rothman has been speaking out for months about the financial strain on universities. Additionally, legislative Republicans passed a budget last month that would cut $32 million from the system in an attempt to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Governor Tony Evers has appointed Ann Peacock to the Dane County Circuit Court. The appointment fills a vacancy created when Judge Chris Taylor was elected to the State of Court Appeals. Peacock is a 2003 graduate of UW Law School. She worked with the Foley and Lardner Law Firm for five years before joining the State Department of Justice. In 2019, Peacock was promoted to lead the department's Civil Litigation Unit, managing a 45-member team that focuses on civil rights and employment law. The controversial spokesperson for the Madison School District, Tim Lamans, has received a $40,000 lump sum payment as a part of his retirement package. Lamans left the district amid an investigation into allegations that he bullied staff and disparaged female journalists. The agreement also bars both him and the district from disparaging each other in public and bars the district from sharing any information about his tenure beyond the dates of employment and position. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that he fell under investigation in 2022 after current and former district employees filed formal complaints over emotional abuse and bullying. In December, the district investigation found the complaints to be without merit. But the complaints were made public in May, bringing calls for a fresh review of Lamont's tenure. The Middleton Municipal Airport is now offering a fully unleaded aviation fuel. The new fuel arrived at Maury Field in July and will reduce lead exhausted missions. The change comes after the Town of Middleton and City of Middleton received criticism over the use of leaded fuel at the airport. In December, a study by the U.S. Geological Survey found lead in two of six Middleton municipal wells. Another report by the County Health Department, also released in December, found no evidence of elevated blood levels caused by the municipal airport, but expert Morgan Fink says the study could be limited by the data available. Unleaded fuel has been used in cars for 50 years, but is not the standard for aircraft engines. Swift Fuels, the research and development company providing the fuel, says the product will lead to fewer mechanical issues. The City of Madison is looking for people interested in getting their foot in the door as the city's next Poet Laureate. Nominations are open to candidates for the position through September 27th. The nomination form is available online at the city's website. The successful bard will succeed the current Poet Laureate, Angela Trudel Vasquez, on January 15th. Nature lovers have made a beeline to Green Bay this week to view a visiting pink bird that's native to the subtropics. 
The rosate spoonbill was first spotted on July 26 in the city's Ken Ewers natural er- nature area. The Associated Press reports the last time the species was seen in Wisconsin was 1845 and that bird was dead. Tom Presby at the Audubon Great Lakes told Wisconsin Public Radio that the spoonbill has ventured as far north as Escanaba, Michigan before returning to Green Bay. He said the bird may remain in Green Bay for several weeks before wandering south. And now, on to today's top stories. With a liberal majority leading the state's Supreme Court, the new balance of power has wasted no time fulfilling Democratic promises made during the spring election. After the swearing-in of Justice Janet earlier this week, one liberal law group has already introduced a lawsuit to undo the state's skewed voting maps. And another lawsuit to nullify Wisconsin's abortion ban is coming. But one move not promised by liberals during the Janet for Justice campaign, firing the state's top courts administrator. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. On Tuesday, the state Supreme Court returned to a liberal majority after the swearing-in of Justice Janet Protasewicz. The next day, that liberal majority fired Randy Koshnick from his job as director of state courts. The position is the chief administrator of the state court system, responsible for their operation and annual budgets. Koshnick had held the job since his appointment in 2017, and in that time, he says he's never had a complaint from any of the liberal justices who fired him. Never any complaints from any of them about anything in six years. He says the fast turnaround on his firing, just days after the new court majority, is also unstabling. Koshnick only had a day's notice that his firing was coming, after receiving a phone call with a heads-up from Justice Jill Karofsky. In fact, he's currently out of state. Court workers are packing his belongings in his stead while he attends a judicial conference in New York. Koshnick says that the court's majority has been vague about the reasons for his firing. The dismissal letter lists no reason for his termination. Koshnick says it's politically motivated and lacks decorum. The court's conservative judges, now in the minority, didn't sign on to Koshnick's firing. In a letter, Chief Justice Annette Ziegler has condemned the move, saying the vote took place without her knowledge or oversight. She points out that when conservatives took control of the court in 2008, they didn't fire the director of state courts. Meanwhile, Koshnick told the Capital Times yesterday that his firing was the result of a rogue, new liberal majority running roughshod over the rule of law. He tells WORT Today that his firing did not follow procedure. So it's not really about me. It's, it's just shocking to me that the four justices would not follow the established procedure, which are in the internal operating procedures of the court. There's written rules. The rules basically say all seven justices agree to a schedule ahead of time. It gets set. And in this case, it begins in September. And that's when these matters are discussed. All seven justices under the rule have to agree to change the schedule. There was no agreement to change the schedule here. And the four liberal justices made the decision without even telling the other three justices that it was being considered. So that, that goes against everything in the history of how the Supreme Court operates as a collegial court. It it's, it's doesn't follow due process. It's, it's rogue lawlessness. It, it's a big threat to the, to the court. Koshnick points to his successes in the job, including tackling a court reporter shortage and keeping courts operational during the pandemic. Though some Milwaukee Circuit Court judges said the recording process Koshnick put in place in 2020 was questionable and even surveillant, 
he received a Legal Innovation Award that same year. But the reasoning for his firing could just be political. Koshnick is a conservative. In 2009, Koshnick ran against incumbent justice Shirley Abramson. Abramson, a liberal who passed away a few years ago, broke several glass ceilings. She'd go on to become the longest-serving state Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin, in addition to being the first woman to serve as a Supreme Court justice and chief justice in the state. The campaign between Abramson and Koshnick wasn't pretty, according to newspaper records from 2009. Koshnick, using a familiar strategy, painted himself as an outsider and Abramson as an activist judge from Madison. He accused Abramson of being soft on crime, despite her backing from numerous law enforcement agencies. Since Koshnick's termination, the Supreme Court has named Milwaukee Circuit Court Judge Audrey Skorowski as his interim replacement. He says this, too, was unlawful. A sitting judge cannot take another position in state government outside of a judgeship while they're serving their term. When I took this position in 2017, I finished my previous judge term to comply with the Constitution. Koshnick tells WORT that his firing doesn't set a good stage for the court's new liberal majority, which is expected to hear some landmark decisions in the coming months. Their decisions are just like the decision to fire me made uh, without following the law. The outcome is predetermined and it's political, not on the merits. I have no more faith in these four justices to ever render just decisions or due process again. And it's hard for me to say that. I've been a judge for 18 years in this state, a lawyer for 15 years before that. I was born and raised here. I always was a true believer in the system, but I no longer have faith in the integrity of our Supreme Court because of those four liberal justices. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The Minocqua Brewing Company in the Northwoods town of Minocqua has been both serving beer and advocating for liberal causes since 2016. But that all changed this morning when an Oneida County committee revoked the brew pub's operating permit after serving alcohol outside. The owner of the brewery says that he's been targeted for his political beliefs. Producer, WORT producer Nate w- Wiggyhout has more. A brew pub in northern Wisconsin known for their vocal support of liberal causes has had their business license revoked by the Oneida County Board. That's after the owner, Kirk Bankstead, says that he was selectively targeted over his political beliefs. The Monaco Brewing Company in Monaco, Wisconsin, was purchased by Bagstat in 2016 and is known for naming their beer after liberal causes and candidates, including Love Wins, a mango sour, Biden Beer, and Bernie Brew, a lager. The brewery also operates a political super PAC, which supports liberal causes. While Bankstead says that he's had more than one run-in with local politicians, the latest began when he applied to open a beer garden in June of this year. After months of his permit languishing in county committees, he says that he had to do something to make room for the people, so he put a table on a small stoop outside of the brew pub. Because his business license does not allow outdoor alcohol sales, his business was shut down today. Bagstead says that while, yes, he does not have a permit with the county to serve alcohol outdoors, his state brewer's license does, and that should supersede the county permit. You know, the the county's permit says that I need to have no outdoor beer sales, but my state and federal brewer license, uh, which should trump a county permit, says that I can sell beer on premise. 
and I believe my concrete soup is on premise. So it's a gray area, but at the end of the day, it's completely harmless. Bankstead says that he has also been targeted by other violations in the past, including not having enough parking spots and not properly covering their dumpster. But Bankstead says that he is being selectively targeted by county officials and that other businesses who are violating the same rules aren't being punished. They're, they're supposed to be kind of fenced in areas uh, that where you're allowed to drink and not. And those rules are always are never often people drink all over the place. But I, we did when we posted that we're that we thought these guys were picking on us. We did get specific pictures of other uh, other bars and restaurants in our county where there were people holding beer outside of any sort of designated area. One such picture posted on their Facebook page last month shows a group of bikers standing outside a bar in the town of Sugar Camp, also in Oneida County, beer in hand. Bagstad told 8 o'clock Buzz host Tony Castaneda this morning that he is preparing to file a legal action against the county to allow his brew pub to reopen. We're going to file a, a federal injunction, an injunction in federal court to have a federal judge stop the enforcement of what they just did because... Mm-hmm. Uh, This is a First Amendment issue. This is political retaliation, and it's silencing speech. And so we got to bring it to the uh, federal level. The chairperson of the Oneida County Board did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime. Only the brewery's brew pub has been shut down by the county, and the Monaco Brewing Company is still able to brew and sell through distributors. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Wisconsin is known for its dairy farms, and Clark County is home to more dairy farms than in any other county in the state. Now, many of those dairy farms rely on largely undocumented workers to do the dirty labor on those farms. And while undocumented workers may legally own a car here in Wisconsin, they cannot drive legally, as state law bars undocumented immigrants from obtaining a driver's license. Earlier this day, Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Melissa Sanchez, a reporter from ProPublica and one of the authors of that story. Tell me a little bit more about what you looked at for this story here. Sure. So so this year, Mariam and I have been looking very broadly at different issues related to conditions for immigrant workers on farms across the Midwest with a, with a pretty obvious focus on Wisconsin. And kind of in the process of reporting this, we discovered that the number one complaint workers had wasn't so much about life on the farm, but about their ability to leave the farm because of their inability to get licenses in Wisconsin. And this is a law that um, they got passed back in 2006, went into effect the following year, and it has has had, it, it's not like a secret. It wasn't like we discovered something that people didn't already know, but I think it wasn't, it hasn't been ever reported what the extent of the harm of this law has been. And one of the things that I think makes this reporting different is that we spoke with more than 100 workers and former workers from the dairy farms, nearly all of them from Mexico and Central America. And and we, we got records from the circuit court system and also from municipal courts all over the state that kind of helped show the scope or the scale of, of, of the harm. And, and essentially workers, immigrant workers on dairy farms and in other industries from hotels to construction when, when they drive and, 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 and they get caught, and I can talk about how they, they, they get caught, 
Um, but they get ticketed, and the tickets cost money. They start at $124. They go up to $200, $300, $400. And they get even higher with like mandatory DNA tests and other, other court fees. And it becomes just an astounding like cost that workers have to pay. And, and thousands of these tickets are issued per year. So the story kind of talks about all of that and, and kind of the impact of this law on on the courts, on farms, and more than anything on the workers who, who whose lives just become much more impossible to live. And I know in one instance in your story, uh, a police cruiser sat right outside of a farm and they were running the license plates of cars that were driving into the farm there, correct? Tell me about mm-hmm. that and sort of the appearance of racial profiling in some of these cases. Yeah, so in all of these interviews we've done with folks, we, we've been hearing over and over about instances where people were pulled over for no apparent reason, no moving violation, not speeding, not running a red light, not running a stop sign. And, and folks wondered why it was that they were pulled over. And, you know, we've heard repeatedly, is it because I'm brown? Is it because I look Mexican? And, um, and we don't, we don't report just based on what people say and think. We, we look for the underlying records. So we, we pull police records, we pull sheriff's records, we pull court records, we pull dash cam video. We try to understand what's happened in, in stops. I, 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 I probably reviewed records on two or 300 cases for this story. And, and what we found is that across the state, and in a lot of rural communities in particular, sheriff's deputies routinely will run plates of passing cars. And we don't know whether they're picking and choosing what cars to run the plates from, but, but very often the running, by running the plates, um, officers are able to see if the registered vehicle owner, so to whom that plate is attached to, whether they have some kind of violation in the system. And that could be a suspended license, a revoked license, some some arrest warrant, and as often as the case with undocumented Hispanic immigrants, no license at all, and so that gives them a, a justifiable like pretext to stop cars, and and it's hard to know whether whether cops are doing this more with like one group of people versus another, but I did find and I sat in court and and, and looked at records a lot over the past few months, and I, I did find like in some of the communities where there were a lot of of Hispanic folks getting stopped for not having a license, but there were also white people being stopped for having a suspended license or some other, you know, minor violation. And the, and the, and the cause of that traffic stop was one of these random running of plates. So the, 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 the instance that we mentioned um, in that story of that happening was in Buffalo County. There was a, a sheriff's deputy parked in front of a, of, of a farm and a guy's on his way into work driving too slow, the officer noted, and it was like a 35 per mile hour uh, speed limit. And he pulled the guy over um, after running the place and discovering that the registered vehicle owner didn't have a license. And he couldn't get a license because he was here illegally like so many dairy workers are. And I think he ultimately paid $443 in the ticket and associated court fees. And tell me about the legal side of all of this. Why are undocumented immigrants not allowed to get a driver's license here in Wisconsin? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. So before 2006, they were allowed to, but there was federal legislation um, in the early 2000s that, that was drawn up kind of in response to 9-11. And, and the intention is called the Real ID Act. And, and the intention was to ensure that the types of identifications that could be used to board planes or enter federal buildings was, was only given to folks who could prove some sort of like legal status or identity here. And, and so after that, states 
that did previously allow undocumented people to get licenses stopped because the driver's license is just such an such a such a easy document to use in order to board planes or to you know to present in other moments. And so Wisconsin banned undocumented immigrants from from getting driver's licenses at that point. But over the years, a lot of other states have changed their laws and given some special kind of driver's license for undocumented immigrants. I live in Illinois, and Illinois has has one of these kinds of IDs. Minnesota just passed a law to do the same thing. Altogether, there's 19 states that do allow undocumented immigrants to get some kind of driver's license. Nearly all of them are blue states. And now you found that roughly half of all of the convictions for driving without a license in Wisconsin last year involved Hispanic drivers. And now Hispanic people make up only 8% of the state's population. Uh, Tell me about that and tell me about what sort of strain that this puts on our court systems. Yeah, so we we worked with a Madison-based company that has access to kind of the underlying um, circuit court uh, data from the state. And, and we, we got records from, from last year showing all of the cases in which uh, that, that were processed in circuit courts. And these cases can also be processed in municipal courts, but that's like a, that's a very complicated system that where there's 230 courts that operate independently of each other. And there's no one place to get records. So we, so we focused largely on the circuit courts. And, um, and it was really stunning to see that. And it kind of like, it, it's, there, there, there's something happening here where Hispanics are getting the bulk of these tickets. And we, we talked to judges, prosecutors, we, we, we talked to defense attorneys, interpreters, court clerks, and, and like I said, like more than 100 people who've gotten these tickets. And, and, and the vast majority of the Hispanic folks getting this particular kind of ticket tend to be undocumented. And sometimes you'll have, you know, just because you're Hispanic, it doesn't mean you're an immigrant or you're undocumented. I'm Hispanic and I'm not an immigrant and I'm not undocumented. But but this is a group that state law is prohibiting from getting getting licenses. Hispanics are the vast majority of of um, the state's population of undocumented immigrants, so it makes sense that they're the ones who are getting all of these tickets. And the cost is tremendous. I talked to one man who's paid me maybe $3,000 in tickets and court fees in Jackson County. Um, I talked to folks who've gotten so many tickets, they've been told directly by the judge, you need to stop driving or the next time you're going to go to jail. People know that the first offense is just a monetary punishment, but the next offense, the next offense all create the possibility of jail time. And in some counties that have the so-called 287G agreements with ICE, there's this ever-present fear of, of deportation once they enter the criminal justice system. I've been talking with Melissa Sanchez, reporter with ProPublica, about her latest story on undocumented immigrants working on dairy farms in Wisconsin and their inability to get a driver's license here in Wisconsin. Now, you can read her full story online over at ProPublica.org. Melissa, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nicole Alley, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbo. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this week, Justice Janet Persewitz was sworn in as the newest member of the state Supreme Court, shifting the court's ideological balance in favor of its liberal-leaning members. This week on Transparency Talk, producer Jonah Chester and Tom Kamernick president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, discuss what the court's new status quo means for transparency in Wisconsin. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. 
All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this Thursday? It's a warm day and the sun's shining over here. It's a good day to talk about transparency. It is a great day to talk about transparency. And uh, we're talking today about the new status quo on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Now, as some people might have heard, it's the talk of the town. Uh, Janet Protasiewicz was officially seated on the court on August 1st. You've probably seen coverage of it. You know, a lot of people are calling this a major shift for the court as it sort of shifts to a, a more liberal leaning, you know, Protasiewicz campaigned on a lot of liberal agenda items. But we're talking about how this new status quo might impact uh, transparency in Wisconsin. As we know, many transparency issues are often solved in the courts. So, Tom, take me from there. What do you think the effect on transparency is going to be going forward? I think there are some swings we're likely to see. And whenever we talk about about the Supreme Court or justices in general and their, their judicial leanings, I always want to be careful of labels. Nothing is hard and fast and set in stone. And while there's certainly some overlap with uh, partisan politics, jurisprudential theories are typically different than the political theories of Republicans and Democrats, often in surprising different ways. And so there's sometimes not clear lines and, and breakdowns of judges you wouldn't necessarily expect. Now, what do we know about Protasiewicz going into this? Can we glean anything from her past on where she'll sort of land on transparency issues? So she was a Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge for nine years, uh, handled a variety of cases. I imagine she probably rotated through different benches. She might have handled, handled civil and criminal and family traffic. Uh, you, you have to dig, dig through the court records to figure that out. But it, it would not have focused on records or meetings cases, certainly. And we know from her campaigning, she uh, was extremely outspoken as a progressive liberal. She directly attacked many of the cases from the you know, the prior Wisconsin Supreme Court that she didn't like the results of. But there's a question mark here on what records or meetings decisions she'll she'll come down with, uh, you know, unless you just assume eh, she's going to be going along with some of the other liberals on the court. Mm -hmm. well, I, you wanted to revisit a particular case we've talked about on this show before. That's Friends of Frame Park. Uh, we have a whole episode on that, I believe. Probably more than one. But uh, in that case... Uh, from last term, again, the majority, which uh, included uh, Justice Brian Hagedorn, they threw out 40 years of, of case law on recovering attorney's fees in records cases. And without going into the details, they just made it much harder to get fees, which means people don't bring as many cases, which means you don't have as much enforcement, which means there's less incentive to behave. It's a problem. So in that case, the three liberal justices, Ann Walsh Bradley, Rebecca Dallet, and Karofsky, they dissented and they would have kept it the same. And, and those same three justices also agreed with the unanimous court of appeals that the city should not have withheld this draft contract that had already been exchanged with the other party in negotiations. On the other hand, the three conservatives, you know, they supported the change in the attorney fees, but they also didn't reach that question of whether they should, whether the city should have released the records because they thought the case was moot. It was done with. Hagedorn, was the only judge to conclude that the city council could withhold the draft contracts there. So could we see, obviously not a retrial of that case, but could we see that decision, you know, further altered, the, the precedent from that decision further altered now that Protasiewicz is on the bench? I don't know where the where the next step would that for that would go, but I know it's been a thorn in your side for quite a while now. 
Well, it's funny you say retrial because, you know, in the news the past couple of days have been a, a handful of lawsuits filed directly with the Supreme Court to try to directly retry cases that were just uh, just decided in the past term or two. Uh, Friends of Frame Park is not one of them. And to be fair, there's certainly a, a long history of, of this on courts in Wisconsin. I, I remember back when um, Indian gaming was a huge issue and Wisconsin had just passed a constitutional amendment to ban expanded gaming, but newly elected Governor Jim Doyle went ahead and signed expanded compacts anyway. And then there was a bunch of lawsuits and litigation and a, a quick ruling that that was illegal followed immediately afterward by a reversal of that within a year or two when um, Justice Louis Butler joined the court, switching the control of the court from conservative to more liberal again, saying, no, 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 you can't have those new gaming compacts. So this is something we've seen in the past, certainly. Back to the question of of what can we expect from this new liberal justice majority, it's, it's hard to say in some circumstances. It's I don't think we're going to always see more favorable transparency rulings, but we might might see more of them. Uh, we can look at the history and see cases where uh, liberal justices voted more commonly with transparency-related causes, but not in all of them. I can I think of a few that jump uh, jump into my mind right away. One of them was one of my cases from my time at Will, as Krieger versus the Appleton Area School District. That was about whether the school committee that was formed to review the whole slate of ninth grade English books, English literature, those committee meetings should have been open to the public because they weren't. All seven justices said, yes, those should have been open to the public. So that was a great result. But the two most liberal justices wrote separately and they would have adopted a much narrower rule that would have made it easier for committees to be created to avoid the open meetings law. So we were not happy to see that. And Overall, I, th I think especially at the Supreme Court, because it tends to take the most prominent or the most statewide effect kind of cases, you do see some disturbing partisan patterns and trends in their decisions based on the plaintiff and the defendant in the case or what kind of records are being sought. So to give a couple examples, Democratic Party of Wisconsin versus Department of Justice, which at the time was uh, run by a Republican attorney general, guess which way it came out? The liberals in that case favored transparency. But go back a few years and you have the Schill case versus um, the Eau Claire uh, School District. Those were about teacher records. In that case, it was the opposite. The conservatives favored transparency and the liberals voted against it. There was a case where um, the teachers unions were seeking election certification records. And so you've got a union plaintiff. In that case, the liberals favored transparency and the conservatives voted against it. But like I said, that Krieger case, that was a school case too. Conservatives were on the transparency side there and liberals weren't. So if you're jaded, you might see, you might just try to predict that based purely on the ideological leanings. Uh, and maybe in all of this, Hagedorn is the only one that we can trust to play it fair. But Hagedorn, as always, uh, he's the wild card of the court. Yeah, it's pretty uh, hard to accuse him of, of having partisan leanings. All right. Well, this is going to be a really interesting topic to keep our eyes on, especially as you know, it's going to be just an absolute flurry at the core over the next couple weeks and months. So I'm interested to see what transparency issues are going to come out of that sort of mad dash, mad scramble, what have you. But we can only predict the future so much. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, 
Thanks so much for joining me this week. My pleasure, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. With July in the rear view and August still to come, the lakes and rivers of Dane County are heating up. This week on Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hasberg ask you to check the water temperature before you fish. Alrighty, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been a uh, bit of a hot couple of weeks here since we've last talked, but uh, looking around the city of Madison, how have uh, how have the fish been biting as of late? Well, the fish have been biting just fine. It's you know the anglers that uh, don't like sitting out there in this heat that uh, kind of slows the action down here at the shop, I guess, from a fishing report standpoint. But folks are getting good, uh, you know, panfish, uh, smallmouth, walleyes. I, everything's been uh, really in a, in a pretty good mood lately. I will say I haven't been out, been able to get out fishing for a, a little bit here, but the last time I did go, it was pretty hot out, and I did just I just walked right into the river. I was on a river near my place, uh, and I just walked right in, took my shoes off, and let me tell you, that that's a good way to beat the heat while still being able to <laughs> catch some fish. So yeah, let's let's go down the list here and start off with Lake Mendota. Let's start off right there. Well, on uh, Lake Mendota, the fishing's been great on weed lines. It's mostly a weed line game. Outside weed edges are uh, been holding the most fish, so uh, some bluegills hanging out there. Decent amount of perch, although those fish seem to be running on the smaller side. Um, smallmouth bass and walleyes are also on the weed lines, but also on mid-lake humps out uh, in the middle of the lake. And there's plenty of pike out there, and the catfish action's been good on Lake Mendota, too, this summer. And I have a question about those weed lines for you, Pat. Now, when whenever I go out, especially in the Madison area lakes, uh, I end up getting real muddled down by uh, the weeds. I get caught up on my lure by the weeds. What, what, do you have any sort of advice for uh, how to sort of avoid getting tangled up in those weeds like that, especially when you're fishing close to those uh, weed lines? Well, you know, there's a number of weedless uh, lure options, uh, different uh, plastics that Folks use for bass, whether it's a worm or a, t- or a tube-shaped uh, jig. Uh, but also this time of year, really, and one of my favorite ways to fish is with a topwater frog. So those are generally weedless, and they stay on top of the water. And you can skid them across the tops of the weeds, flip them into little pockets, and there's bass just sitting down there waiting for something to swim across little open areas. And uh, there's nothing more fun uh, than having a largemouth come up and just blow up on your frog right on the surface. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great way to get out and, and still get some fish. And, and, yeah, the weeds can be annoying this time of year. So weedless uh, lure options are, are a great, uh, great solution this time of year. I got turned on to the topwater frogs just last summer as the first time I really started using them. And uh, this time of year, I really am using those topwater frogs anytime I'm in any of the lakes or really any any lake I'm looking at. I'm I, The first thing I'm going to go for is some of those topwater frogs. So moving on now to uh, Lake Monona. What's happening on Lake Monona these days? Uh, still a good uh, panfish bite down there. Bluegills are suspended out over deep water, so a really nice relaxing way to fish, especially in this heat, is to just kind of drift along in a boat with your line 15 feet down over just about any depth of water, 30, 30 feet to 60 feet, and you're going to find uh, schools of fish. You'll just kind of stumble upon them, and good numbers of fish and, and some good size. 
I've been hearing about some nice walleye being caught in the evenings up shallow, uh, mostly on the south end of the lake, kind of in that John Nolan Drive area. Um, and also the muskie fishing, although the muskie fishing has been good, uh, although when the water temperatures get up into this 80-degree area, they recommend not to fish for muskies because they can get stressed uh, being caught in that warmer water. But, um, yeah, a lot of good fishing down on Lake Winona. Moving on, speaking of muskies, to uh, Lake Wingra. Uh, what have you been hearing out of there? Well, in Wingra is pretty much the same report as always. It's just a tiny bluegill factory, so if you've got young ones and you're looking to keep them busy, it's a great spot down there. That uh, Vilas Park Drive right along the zoo is a fantastic spot to just throw out a small bobber with a small jig and a, and a spike or a waxworm on there. works great. You can keep kids busy for hours. And, you know, even if the kids aren't that uh, into fishing, there's a playground right there and, of course, the zoo. Um, but otherwise, on, on Lake Winger, I, I hear reports of some really nice largemouth bass coming out of there. And, of course, the muskies in Wingra too, are uh, not the biggest muskies in the Madison area, but uh, there are good numbers of them. And let's move on over to Wabisa and that area over there. What have you been hearing there? Wabisa's been good. There's a great largemouth bass bite going on down there, uh, Upper Mud Lake, which is attached to Wabisa, and then Wabisa itself, both on the north and south ends of that lake, has been great for largemouth bass. Uh, some walleyes coming out of the Babcock Park area, and, you know, panfish on the weed lines and suspended out over deeper water there, too. So, um, yeah, a lot of good fishing on Wabisa, for sure. And now this is, seems to be the summer of Lake Caganza, so what's happening over there? Kiganza's still been producing some fish. Uh, the walleye action has kind of dipped off a little bit, but uh, the panfish action has uh, continued to be great. And I don't know what it is about uh, Kiganza, but there's the bluegills down there just seem a little more special than the rest of the chain. They they're, they tend to be bigger, prettier fish, and um, you know there seems to be they seem to be plentiful this year. Uh, they were on weed lines, and it sounds like now they're. Uh, suspended in that same 15 feet of water out over 30 feet of water or the deepest water you can find uh, is where you're going to find those fish and yeah the bite the bite's been good for those fish all right so now let's move over to some trout fishing uh what's been the trout bite in the area lately it has been warm has that sort of affected the trout bite at all it does. Uh, when the stream temps uh, that get above 67 degrees, they recommend that you give the trout a break. Uh, so fishing uh, early in the mornings is going to be most effective. Um, but also, you know, with the trout um, and, the, and the warm water, trout actually, once, once that water temp gets up into 70 degrees, the trout actually get lethargic themselves, sort of like we do when it's too hot. They just don't feel like doing much. Uh, but So if you can fish early in the mornings, that's great. Um, but if you if you can keep an eye on stream temps and can find a, a nice cool stream, this is terrestrial season. And by terrestrials, I mean ants, beetles, grasshoppers, crickets. All of those patterns are working really well for trout, and they are looking up and they're looking for that big easy meal that plops into the creek. And so uh, this is we're just getting into that uh, time of year. It's going to be great fishing with those patterns uh, through the rest of the fall here. All right, and we're sort of running up against the clock here today, Pat. So do you just have any final advice for the people out there this week? Well, I guess uh, given the theme of our talk here, you know, just watch the water temps and get out when you can. It looks like we got uh, some beautiful weather ahead, so it should be some great fishing. I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over here at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. And remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy number. That's 608 big fish. Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week and good luck out there. 
Always a pleasure, Nate. You take care. Coming off of a tough loss and a hard-fought draw at home, forward Madison hopes to take all three points in Richmond, Virginia this weekend in the season's second matchup of the Henny Derby. If Madison's footballing flamingos can pull off the win, they will bring the gold bottle trophy home for a second year in a row. More now from Forward Focus. Hello again and welcome to everyone listening to WORT online and at 89.9 FM on your radio dial. This is another edition of Forward Focus, a segment devoted to any and all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for FMFC and soccer culture-themed publication, New Dog Mazine. Joining me, as always, is the editor of NDZ and the producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt, along with the director of public relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick. When we last left you, FMFC were still battling for position near the top of the table and facing a tough stretch of two games in four days. The Goes had the advantage with both matches being at historic Bree Stevens Field, the first last Wednesday against South Georgia Tormenta FC, and then again this past Saturday against Greenville Triumph SC. With a recap of the action and what transpired on the pitch, Evan... Take it away. The final two home matches in July saw Forward Madison first facing a South Georgia Tormenta squad on Wednesday, July 26th. The match started in the fastest way possible for FMFC, with a goal 18 seconds into the match from striker Christian Cheney. This was the fastest goal in club history. Tormenta then equalized just seven minutes later off the foot of former forward Madison player Mateus Cassini. With the momentum shifted, Tormenta continued to put the pressure on the FMFC back line and ended up slotting three more goals in to end the match 4-1 over the Flamingos. A quick turnaround saw FMFC back in action just three days later in front of the second largest crowd in forward Madison history. The Mingos took on Greenville Triumph SC and once again jumped out to an early lead courtesy of Christian Cheney. The home side was awarded a penalty in the first half, their first one awarded in 2023, but Jaden Odin's Panenka penalty hit the crossbar and the match went into half level at 1-1. More crossbar hits occurred in the second half for FMFC, and after all was said and done, the match ended level at 1-1 with both teams gaining a point. As we start the month of August, Ford Madison is currently in fourth place in the USL League One with just two months of the season yet to play. The squad has two home matches in the month of August, one on Wednesday, August 9th, and another on Saturday, August 12th. Many Madison fans will be looking to put the past few games behind them, most already having forgotten about the draw in North Carolina and the home loss versus Tormenta. We hear from Oleg Timikin again, this time a short and sweet synopsis of the Flamingos' recent form. It feels to me like the team hit this natural curve of struggling to hold the same level of play. It happens to every team and in every sport, and the best way I can describe it is the fatigue of maintaining the um, intensity of our play. 
It's noticeable in every line, and for example, the forwards are having a hard time using the chances that they would have capitalized earlier on in the season. Midfielders are being out of rhythm during transition stages, and defenders struggling with rapid over-the-head balls that leads the opponents to go uncontested to the goal. And because it's like a bell curve, I believe that this fatigue during a late mid-season can turn into a very strong end-of-the-season performance. If that's the case, this means that we should head into the playoffs during the peak performance, if, of course, we make it to playoffs. Many fans are cautiously optimistic about the games ahead after what felt like a match hard done by suspect officiating and bits of bad luck. Captain Mitch Osmond shared the positives he saw versus Greenville. The work rate, first and foremost. Uh, guys are running themselves into the ground. The discipline in, in the structure being so difficult to break down. Of course, we can do better to not concede the goal that we did, but I think it was the only shot they had in the second half. It's, it's a hard one to take, but that's the nature of this game, right? It can be cruel sometimes. Striker Christian Chaney appears to be hitting his stride in front of goal, netting two times in the recent pair of games. We spoke with him after the Greenville game. I, I feel good about getting the goal. I just, I just need to get, get more. You know, I mean, obviously one's not enough, and I think if I score more goals, it'll, it'll solidify a lot more. I, I came into this season, and I want the pressure. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the pressure. Like I'll take the pressure of the pen that we had today. You know, I'll take the pressure of, of having to score all the goals if I have to. I don't. I mean, I don't, obviously not one person could score every single goal for the team, right? But that's what I came into the team with, with the expectation of me taking the weight off, off everybody else and knowing that they have a nine that's going to finish the chances. And that's why I'm saying I think I should finish more goals. I think I still lead the league in, like, shots. I just need to, you know, put them away. Cheney is combined with midfielder Isidro Cello Martinez for his most recent goal, a partnership which will likely prove important in the lead-up to the League One playoffs. I mean, me and Cello, we we have a good connection, you know, in training and like off the field and whatnot. But I just told him, hey, when you get in the attacking third man, like find me. Like, I want to be the killer. I want to be the guy that you know is going to put the ball away. And and he did. So when he put the ball there, I seen a defender coming, and I knew that if I pulled the trigger, it would be deflected. So I just kind of tried to find an opening, and I found the slightest of gaps to shoot, and I just hit it. You know, I didn't even know where it was going. Mitch Osmond is bullish leading into a hopeful playoff run, and in his mind, the way forward is clear and uncomplicated. He shared his thoughts on what's needed down the stretch. Tighten the screws a little bit. Uh, we're still in a great spot. Uh, we're in a good position on the table. Um, we, have, uh, we have a lot of games still with the teams around us, which allows us to control our destiny and, and control where we end up in at the end of the regular season. So I'm really positive with that. And But... We can't accept the the results as they are, and and we need to get back to those those winning ways. And and regardless of referees or, or opposition or whatever's going on within our own team, we need to find a way to win. And and I think we're more than capable of that. I'm, I'm really pleased with the the mentality, the approach. Um, you know, a little a little more focus on the back and a little more killer instinct on the front, and and we'll be just fine. The Flamingos are back in action this Saturday in the second Henning Derby matchup of the season in Richmond, Virginia. If FMFC can etch out another victory, they will not only continue to solidify their place in the playoff race, but will have secured the coveted gold bottle of Hennessy, bringing it home to Madison for the second straight year. Kickoff at City Stadium is at 6 p.m. Central. For WORT, this has been Forward Focus.
that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Vocal News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporters tonight were Faye Parks and Sarah Gabler. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamanick, Pat Hasberg, Andrew Schmidt, Grant Peters, and Evan Warwick. Dylan Brogren engineered the show, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. And for the last time, we can say that Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. It's Nate's last day at WORT as he's heading on to a new home in Radioland. Congratulations, Nate, and good luck on your next adventure. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Nicole Alley. Stay up to date with the Wart Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night. Good night.